0: This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 31, Tolkien vs. Disney. That's right, today we're featuring a smackdown between J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and Walt Disney with a tag, Uh, is that what you do, tag team? A tag from C.S. Lewis, Tolkien and Lewis, toe-to-toe with Walt Disney. This is going to be a weird one, but there's actually some really interesting stuff. Interesting to me, which is what this is all about, I guess. uh, This all starts with the release of Snow White in 1937. Snow White was a big deal, and I don't know how into Disney you are, but if you know just a little bit about Disney's full-length feature films you know that Snow White was the first of the animated films, not just Disney animated films but it was the first full-length feature film, feature animated film in history which makes it a big deal until that point, all of these cartoons were shorts and they were played, you know, right before a feature film of some kind not only that, they hadn't been making talking movies for very long and so this was a big deal, a great risk Uh, Walt Disney had it as his vision. He wanted to do the Grimm Brothers' Tale of Snow White. And he wanted to do it full-length feature film. He was given a budget of $250,000. But the project just grew and grew and grew and took a long time. Much longer than they expected. And people began to call it Disney's Folly. Started saying it's going to be a failure, a major flop. Even his wife was trying to talk him out of this he had to mortgage his house the initial budget of two hundred and fifty thousand was way short the film eventually ran up to cost 1.4 million dollars which was a lot of money for a movie in 1937 but it was a great success you know the history it's still very popular people are still watching it and it had so much influence over not only the movie industry but people returning to Grimm's fairy tales and other stories like that and amusement parks and all kinds of things, books and and so on it grossed uh, 8 million dollars was a huge success became the highest grossing sound film of its day and the rest is history. So you would think that pretty much across the board, every thinking individual would just be thrilled with this movie, right? Wrong. There were two middle-aged men who hated this movie, and their names are J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. These are two worlds in my mind that have never been brought together until I heard this story. Uh, You know... I'm aware that both are 20th century titans in the entertainment industry and literature. I know that, um, you know, they must have lived around the same time. I'm talking about Disney and then Tolkien and Lewis. But I never thought about them thinking about one another. And I'm still not sure that Disney ever gave much thought to Tolkien and Lewis. But Tolkien and Lewis gave a lot of thought to Walt Disney. Uh, Lewis saw the movie first and then he went back and got his friend J.R.R. Tolkien to go and view it again and their opinions are on the record in the form of letters that they had written Uh, in one letter written in 1939 I think they saw the movie in 1938 so in a letter dated 1939 to his friend A.K. Hamilton Lewis said this about Snow White, and he said a few things about Walt Disney, uh, the the brainchild behind Snow White. I quote: "Dwarfs ought to be ugly, of course, but not in that way, and the dwarfs' jazz party was pretty bad. I suppose it never occurred to the poor boob, and he's talking about Walt Disney here, that you could give them any other kind of music, but all the terrifying bits were good." And the animals really most moving, and the use of shadows of dwarfs and vultures was real genius. What might not have come of it if this man had been educated or even brought up in a decent society. So there might be a, a bit of a jab on the United States there as well, but he was not very fond of, of uh, Walt Disney at all. And uh, he didn't like the Queen. He believed her design was unoriginal. Uh, in another place, he described the dwarves as having bloated, drunken, low-comedy faces. He just really didn't like it at all and was throwing a lot of shade at Walt Disney. And his friend Tolkien didn't like it either. Both of them really had a problem with the dwarves. These guys are very serious about their dwarves. And if you've read Lord of the Rings or seen the movies you know that the dwarves of the Lord of the Ring universe are very different from the seven dwarves in the tale of Snow White you know with dopey and sleepy and sneezy and they they are comical on the one hand and very serious in many ways on the other hand on the one hand you have you know guys that work in the mines and sing hi ho hi ho And on the other hand, you have warriors who give their lives for good causes. Very different ideas of dwarves. It's just kind of funny to hear old men argue about dwarves. Um, Later, much later, decades after he saw the movie, Tolkien wrote letters about it, and uh, he saw Disney's work on the whole as vulgar, and... He called Disney himself simply a cheat, and this was in 1964, so after Disney had been able to make a lot more money off of similar projects to Snow White. He called him hopelessly corrupted by profit-seeking, though Tolkien had to admit himself that he had made a little bit of money off of his stories. Uh, Here's one quote. I recognize his talent, but it has always seemed to me hopelessly corrupted. Though in most of the pictures proceeding from his studios, there are admirable or charming passages, the effect of all of them to me is disgusting. Some have given me nausea. So he got physically ill over Walt Disney's work. And this is just cracking me up because I, I just see these guys. Uh, I have this image in my mind of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien going out to the movies on an evening and throwing peanuts at the screen and booing and, and hissing and, and just shouting all kinds of things at the movie. I know they didn't really do that, but it's funny to think of it that way. They really hated Snow White. Now, what is all of this about? I mean, what harm does Snow White do? And why did these two men have such a visceral reaction That lasted for decades. Maybe you've thought before about how none of Tolkien's stories have ever made it into the Disney universe. They seem a natural fit. They're fantasy. They have good versus evil and good winning. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia had been produced by uh, Walt Disney Pictures. Uh, Why not Lord of the Rings? Uh, It was eventually picked up you know, by Peter Jackson and other studios, but never, ever by Walt Disney, and it never will be as long as Tolkien's family is involved, because he did not want Walt Disney to get his hands on any of his stories. So what's behind all of this? Why did these two men have such a problem with Walt Disney? It all goes back to their philosophy about stories, and what stories really mean, and how significant they are, and what they symbolize. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien were friends for 40 years. They met at Oxford, as I understand, um, after the First World War, and were friends and had disagreements, sometimes very serious disagreements, but stayed in touch with one another, and influenced one another for a very long time. Uh, There range of studies included English language and literature particularly middle English and medieval studies and uh, mythology and they were very well versed in these before they began writing on Christian subjects and on their fantasy works and their fictional works and they developed out of this a philosophy about stories and their importance And I'm going to share with you some quotations from various works that they've written, essays and other things, to help you understand their negative reaction to Snow White. Uh, The first example I'm going to read to you comes from the foreword to my edition of The Lord of the Rings. I have one of these big books that has all three volumes in one. And uh, in the foreword... He, uh, Tolkien is writing about the Lord of the Rings and the nature of the story and his distaste for what he calls allegory. Uh, he says, I cordially dislike allegory. Uh, English guys always cordially dislike things. He cordially disliked allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader, and the other in the purpose domination of the author." I don't know if you can catch what he's talking about there, or if you even know what allegory is. Uh, Probably the best example of allegory that you probably had to study in school is the Pilgrim's Progress. In the Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress, the symbols are self-evident. I mean, it's obvious that the main character represents a Christian because his name is Christian, for example. And when he faces problems, he the problems are named are characterized by people carrying the name of the problem or the challenge or the temptation or whatever it is. So allegories the, are written by authors who are forcing your mind to interpret the symbol in a very narrow way. And Tolkien didn't like that. In fact, he was not a fan of his friend's Chronicles of Narnia because Narnia is very much allegorical. I wouldn't say wholly so. It tells a good story on its own. Um, Another podcast might concern Disney Pictures' comments about Chronicles of Narnia and how they in some cases, denied that it had anything to do with Christianity. Anybody who's read it sees the obvious Christian references because it is very allegorical, and Tolkien expressed distaste for it because he was against allegory. What he liked were stories that were true in of themselves, that were integrated and could stand on their own, that had applicability, was the word that he liked to use. In other words, the reader could pull from his own experiences and interpret the story in ways that were special to him and reach into the deep wells of his own soul without the author having to interfere with that process at all so I respect that I understand what he's saying there it's interesting Um, so that's one thing to let you in on Tolkien's idea maybe you know the story about Lewis's conversion to Christianity. For a long time, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And the man who, more than any other, contributed to his conversion was J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, They were together in a literary group called the Inklings in Oxford, and they would talk about Christianity, they would talk mythology, stories, they would share their writings and their poetry with one another. And it was a group that that was very close and um, very influential on each other's lives and uh, Lewis and Tolkien on one evening uh, the exact date is known to us September the 19th, 1931 had this long discussion in which Lewis was saying he couldn't see what meaning Christ's life death and resurrection could possibly have for him living At that time, 1,900 years after all of that had occurred. And Tolkien said, the gospel works in the same way myths work. See, myths were very important to Lewis. Um, Lewis was moved by stories and myths and legends. They gave him a sense of joy and longing in his heart. Um, But Lewis replied, myths are lies breathed through silver. And Tolkien replied, No, they're not completely lies. Myths have elements of the truth within the distortions and unworthy outer husk they often wear. Myths are echoes or memories of the truth God originally made known to Adam and Eve, the ancestors of the the human race. There are in myths memories, Tolkien said, of the unfallen world, Memories of paradise when the world was not stained by human rebellion, but characterized only by goodness and joy in all of life. There is a sense, he said, of shame and tragedy of the brokenness of our present life, and in myths there are hints of the promise and hope of redemption of the setting right of all things. And then he said the gospel is the true myth, the great fairy story. And in the gospel of Christ, all the elements of truth in the pagan myths find their fulfillment. In other words, Tolkien convinced Lewis that the gospel is the story about which all other stories speak. And see, stories are ways that people communicate meaning they don't quite understand. And so Tolkien was you know saying that Men have been telling these ancient stories that have survived for ages and ages and ages, been passed down from generation to generation because they carry truth in them. And the reality that they symbolize and point to that people are trying to grapple with has been revealed in the story, which is the gospel. And that conversation supposedly went on till about 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was a significant turning point in Lewis's faith And just a few days later, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Another thing that Lewis talked about a great deal was a sense of otherness. One of the advantages stories give the imagination is that it can lift it out of its present circumstances to strange worlds or unknown worlds, foreign worlds never seen before, And that gives the reader a sense of otherness. And I'll just read to you something Lewis said about science fiction and its connection to a spiritual dimension. He writes, "...no merely physical strangeness or merely spatial distance will realize that idea of otherness, which is what we are always trying to grasp in a story about voyaging through space. You must go into another dimension." To construct plausible and moving other worlds, you must draw on the only real other world we know, that of the Spirit. I think what he's saying here is, you can't even get this sense of otherness by traveling to the other side of the world. If you live in the Western world, as I do, and you travel to China, you might get new experiences and see interesting things and enlighten your mind, but you're not going to get this It's not enough strangeness to give you the sense of otherness. Uh, You can go to the moon, but you're still on the moon. You're not in the moon that's in a story. I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, I'm not talking about walking on the moon. None of us has. But um, I don't know if you've ever experienced the difference between traveling to a foreign land and then reading about that place in a fictional story or even a non-fictional story, the way it's described, it just gives you this sense of, of longing and otherness, and it, it gives you a taste of the spiritual dimension. That's what Lewis is saying. And his stories are important because they are a foretaste of another world. And maybe the, the worlds in these myths don't exist, but the sense of another world points to a world that truly does exist, the spirit realm, where where God dwells. Something else C.S. Lewis said about myths. He said, A myth points for each reader to the realm he lives in most. It is a master key. Use it on what door you like. Whether the myth be an old one that gives structure to the work, or a new one that creates its own form, the basis of narrative literature is myth-making. It is not literary art that gives power to myth, but myth that charges the literature with its vitality. This takes us back to the preface to The Lord of the Rings, where Tolkien was talking about the difference between allegory and that which is applicable, or applicability. Um, Allegory, you know, the writer forces the meaning on the reader, the interpretation on the reader, but stories don't do that the reader meets the story where he is and can bring his own interpretation in and that's what Lewis is talking about here with myth it's like a master key you can use it on whatever door you want it gives structure and uh, basis to what you're going through and helps you work through things in reality one last quote about the value of myth to get you thinking about where these men were coming from when they were sitting in that theater watching Snow White. Uh, This is Lewis again. He seems to have written more. I've just been able to collect more quotes from him than Tolkien, but they were in agreement on most of these things. Lewis says this in an essay called On Stories. The value of the myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. The child enjoys his cold meat, otherwise dull to him by pretending it is buffalo, just killed with his own bow and arrow. And the child is wise. The real meat comes back to him more savory for having been dipped in a story. By putting bread, gold, horse, apple, or the very roads into a myth, we do not retreat from reality. We rediscover it. So, this concept of the veil of familiarity also is overcome by stories. Uh, Stories are fictional, but they aren't necessarily fully removed from the realm of truth or reality. Because the character... Let me give you some examples. The character attributes that you read in the people in the, the story, those are real you find that in the real world the way people respond to one another real relationships how those work psychology emotions all of that is truth and then behind that often you'll find things that resonate with the gospel and with creation and with a spirit world as we saw in another quotation so we often refer to stories as escapes. We talk about escapism. And Lewis is arguing here that when we get into a good myth, a good story, we don't retreat from reality, we, we rediscover it. And I hope maybe you can see their arguments in those few quotes that I was able to read. Now, why didn't they like Snow White? Well, Snow White was a commercial success, and Disney was obviously wanting to make some money. Walt Disney is still into profiteering. That's capitalism. That's the way the world works. And look, uh, it has given people an opportunity to hear a story that they might not otherwise have heard. Millions of people have derived a lot of enjoyment because Snow White was a commercial success. I think that's part of it. But then also in trying to achieve commercial success, Disney may have made Snow White a little more fun than Tolkien and Lewis wanted it to be. Now that doesn't mean it's wrong. That's just the difference of opinion there. They take dwarves and witches and sorcerers and myths very seriously because they're looking at a story to try to find the underlying spiritual reality that's important to their faith, and Disney is just trying to bring some wholesome entertainment to a group of kids, and maybe they can get the idea that good wins over evil in the end. They're coming from two different perspectives, and so that's why the clash was there so strongly. What can we take from this? I think there's some takeaways. Maybe we should look a little deeper whenever we're reading a good story, ask ourselves... Is there something here that points to a deeper meaning, to the other? Whenever a story creates longing in us, maybe we should think about why that is. After you see a good movie, or hear a good piece of music, or see a good piece of art, or read a good story, and it sticks in your head for a long time, and your heart goes back to it, and your mind wanders away from your present familiar circumstances, think about that longing and what it represents. Does it not say that there's something more to life than just the ordinary world we're in now? And that longing is universal, which is another thing the stories do. They bring humanity together. They show our commonality across all cultures and uh, nations, backgrounds, and all over the world. There are certain stories that have survived across every civilization. How is that? Why is that? Does it not speak to something about us that we all have in common, that we've all been made in the image of God, that we're all united in some way? It's truth with a capital T, and the world needs more of that today. Truth is being maligned, and reality is being maligned, and people are just talking about their own individual circumstances as the only truths that we can come to but there is a singular absolute objective capital T truth and I think stories echo that in their various ways get a good book get some stories read watch good movies and think about them a little more deeply than just passing the time through entertainment by the way Uh, I think yesterday was National Writers' Day. And I was going to say this at the top of the podcast, that that's why we can focus on two of my favorite authors today, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. There are a lot of other stories and other things that we can say about them and Walt Disney. So I hope you'll keep listening as we come to other episodes like this and more on Wide Margins.